1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
2: Welcome to Dietetics After Dark, your source for food-related crime, scandal, and fraud. Welcome everyone. I'm Sarah. And I'm Becca. How are you, Becca? I'm doing good. How are you? (laughs) I'm good as well. We're recording at night. I know this is new for us. Yeah. Every time we're going to try a different time of the day until we find our perfect energy.
0: Yeah. We're trying this one out. I have a Moscow mule going. And I have a Sauvignon Blanc. Do you think night's going to be our vibe? Right now, I feel more energized than I did last episode. Yeah, for the morning episode? Yeah, we did the morning, and now I feel like a little bit, I don't know, the ambiance is there. True. I've spent yeah. most of the day researching what we're talking about today, so I feel revved up, ready to go.
2: That's a really good point. The info's really fresh in my head. Mine too. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, there are a couple things we want to maybe talk about before we get into it. Tell them our big news. Okay. (laughs) The biggest
0: news from the last couple of weeks is that we ranked to
2: number one in Bulgaria. Number one in Bulgaria. You heard that right. (laughs) Isn't that wild? I don't know how. We don't, if you look at our like geographic spread of listeners, they're not in Bulgaria. So I don't really understand how it happened.
0: No, I don't either. But oh and I should I should mention number one in true crime. Oh
2: yeah, number not one in all true podcasts. crime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not at all podcasts. Not beating out Joe Rogan yet. <laughs> no. Oh my gosh. That's impossible, I think. Um, yes. Okay, so we we came up with an idea to produce more content because these episodes, these full episodes are so research intensive that they take a really long time. And we've got a lot on our plate. So we want to put out content more frequently. And we thought a fun idea would be covering current food news stories. Mm -hmm. And we're looking for names. So we're talking short episodes, current kind of fun, foodie news stories. We'll workshop it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Don't stress out. (laughs) But yeah, so far, all our names are really um, cheesy
0: very cheesy and I think that we are both really good with the cheese you yeah. just need
2: something a little yeah. oh bit oh my gosh
0: Becca witty. What? do we call it extra cheese extra cheese <laughs> do we did we just figure it out did oh my gosh listeners we don't need you anymore I'm writing that down well we might but that's actually a contender <laughs> extra cheese
2: <laughs> wow that's so funny all we needed to do was talk to each other about this. All we needed to do. Yeah, <laughs> to talk in person. We just text all the time. All right. But yes,
0: that is the idea. We're planning on starting it sometime in December
2: when our master's program slows down a bit. Mm-hmm. So yeah, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Also, thank you so much to everyone who's left us amazing reviews. It's mm-hmm. really sweet and heartwarming and fun to read.
0: And everyone who's just listened in general, like it's, it's honestly been so nice to hear your comments and feedback and Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And I also have to give my sister a shout out because she was really upset that you gave your sibling a shout out in the first episode and that she didn't get one. So hi, Elizabeth. (laughs) (laughs) Who did I shout out? Did you give your sibling a shout out? Maybe. In the Halloween episode, I think.
2: Oh, maybe something costume related. I don't remember. I think so. That's so funny. (laughs) She was pissed though. (laughs) Hi, Elizabeth. (laughs) I wanted to say, so I was asking my friends and family for feedback, Mm -hmm. constructive criticism, and I got one good piece from my dad. And so he told me to think of some new adjectives because I say interesting all the time. Just with different intonations. So (laughs) apparently I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. And then two seconds later, I'd be like, interesting. (laughs) So I have a list of alternate adjectives. Oh my God, do you really? Yeah, I wrote it down. That's so so funny. I'm going to read it to you. It's really short. Well, it's eight, but I didn't want to give myself too many because I just won't remember them. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to try fascinating. 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 Curious. Like, ooh, that's curious. (laughs) Exotic. Oh, wow. Maybe. I don't know what you're going to tell me. Provocative. Now, where is this podcast going today? We don't know. <laughs> That's the point. I have to be prepared for everything. Captivating.
0: Captivating.
2: That's going to be a hard one to squeeze in a conversation, I think, like naturally. Yeah. But Becca, your storytelling is captivating.
0: <laughs> your dad will be so proud if you slip in a captivating. <laughs> One thing I noticed about myself is I have a tendency to repeat what you say. Do you? See, I never know. I would never have noticed. No, I didn't notice either until I I listened to the first episode. Um, And it's so funny because I think that's a strategy that we learned in our like motivational interviewing in dietetics. It is. And I caught myself doing it and I'm like, this sounds annoying, but I know that I'm following the rules of interviewing.
2: (laughs) That's so funny. I thought I was, I felt like I was being counseled through the whole first episode. (laughs) just kidding. (laughs) Just kept you going. Just kept, kept reaffirming everything I was saying. But anyways, our flaws aside, our weird habits aside. (laughs) Our room for improvement, not flaws. We're working. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's do this. Let's do this because we have a lot. A lot today. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's a big day. Prepare yourselves, everyone. The information in this podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're interested in medical nutrition therapy or personalized nutrition advice, please talk to a registered dietitian in your area. All the citations and relevant links for anything mentioned in this episode will be in our show notes. This podcast may contain coarse language, mature subject matter, and content of a violent or disturbing nature. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, so I'm going to start. Becca asked me to research organics, which is a wormhole and a half. And mm-hmm. honestly, Becca, I'm so excited to tell you some of these stories. I really am.
0: I'm excited to hear them.
2: One of these stories, I remember the first time I heard it, my jaw was literally on the floor. So I'm hoping it has really? the same. Yeah, for, I'm, and I don't even okay. think I'm hyping it up too much. Okay, so let's start nice and easy. What's organic food? Do you want to wager a answer?
0: I guess. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I should know yeah. this. This <laughs> is my topic, but yeah, it's. I mean, it's a, a method, a way of. Producing, growing food, Mm -hmm. and just like all the things that are kind of associated with that. So, obviously, the farming practices, the things that they use on the food, stuff like that,
2: right? Totally. That's a very good answer. I was kind of expecting you to just say, like, without pesticides, fertilizers, GMOs, antibiotics, hormones, things like that, which is, I think, Mm -hmm. what most people think about when they think organic. And it is those things. You can't grow with those things, but it's so much more. It's a full system designed Mm -hmm. to optimize the productivity and the health of the whole ecosystem, the soil, the plants, the livestock, and the people. So the goal of organic agriculture is to create systems that are sustainable and harmonious with the environment. Sounds nice, doesn't it?
0: That does sound nice. I like that word.
2: So what's interesting about organic farming is that it's one of the oldest aspects of Our civilization of human civilization, but it's also a relatively new concept.
0: So true. It's so strange how it's kind of both. It's the oldest, but it's also such a like a a fad right now, almost not a fad, but you know what I mean. It's
2: like a we're like revisiting what farming was for millennia. Mm -hmm. Um. So yeah, for ages, farmers relied on natural forms of fertilizers and pesticides, some of which would have qualified as organic today. So the earliest known use of a pesticide occurred 4,500 years ago by Sumerians in Mesopotamia, which I didn't know was Iraq, Kuwait, and Turkey. I didn't know that. And they used sulfur compounds to control for insects. And then 3,200 years ago, we see Chinese farmers using mercury and arsenic to control insects as well. And these are all compounds that maybe sound a little freaky, but they're naturally occurring in the environment. There are also early records of farmers using odorous smoke, which literally means they would set stinky things on fire. So like fish, crabs, manure, and then they would kind of direct the smoke over their crops to drive away any insects and pests. Interesting. Yeah, it <laughs> must have smelled so bad. And finally, tar was used on trees to kind of stop crawling insects And of course, weeds were weeded by hand. So farming sounds like a grind. It is a grind. It's a very hard job, but even more so back in the day. Yeah, I have a garden. I couldn't (laughs)
0: imagine doing that at a large scale. So you get it.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Okay. so modern synthetic fertilizer and pesticide use began in the 20th century. And I'm going to start off by telling you the story of Fritz Haber, the father of modern fertilization. So before synthetic fertilizers existed, crop production depended on the amount of nitrogen available in the soil. Nitrogen is everywhere. Our atmosphere is actually 80% nitrogen. But it's found in its N2 form, which means that two molecules of nitrogen are tightly bound together. Nature has a way around that, though. There are bacteria living on the roots of legumes. So things like peanuts, peas, alfalfa that actually fix nitrogen. So they're called nitrogen-fixing bacteria. And these nitrogen-fixing bacteria basically take the N2 and they split it. So you get two molecules of nitrogen. And then each molecule binds to three hydrogen molecules to get NH3, which is ammonia, AKA a wonderful fertilizer. So farmers would rotate legume plants into their crops and ensure that the soil was healthy and that there was enough nitrogen. And there's one other way that nature fixes nitrogen. Bolt of lightning. I didn't know this. I thought, I thought that's so cool. So a bolt of lightning will actually break nitrogen bonds in the air and release a light rain of nitrogen.
0: That's so fascinating. Fascinating.
2: Exotic. <laughs> wow, exotic. Um, so cool, but obviously a little bit unreliable. And so agriculture needed more reliability to feed the growing population. And this is where Fritz Haber's story begins.
1: Mm.
2: Buckle up. Fritz Haber was a German chemist, and he invented the Haber-Bosch process. So Haber is, of course, Fritz Haber's last name. Bosch was his partner. But um, what Carl Bosch did was industrialize the process years later, whereas Fritz Haber was the brains behind the invention. Okay. And the Haber-Bosch process is a way of fixing nitrogen, and it's often considered one of the most important inventions of the 20th century. Wow. I know. So by some estimates, two out of every five people on Earth today would not be alive without the Haber-Bosch process because this invention allowed farmers to improve crop fertilization and grow more food to feed the growing population. This was like a major concern at the time. And this process... Kind of solved it. You know, without this invention, the Haber Bosch process, the world's population would have ground to a halt. People might have starved. Billions of people would have never been born.
0: That 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 that's insane. That's insane. It's wild that it was up to these two men. And
2: I don't know if they knew that they were like on. They were intentionally on this task. But he, mm-hmm. they invented this. That they like. I think the world kind of breathed a sigh of relief and was like, okay, we can grow more food. This is great. Yeah. So he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1920 for, quote, improving the standards of agriculture and well-being of mankind, end quote. So, a hero, one might think. (laughs) The story doesn't end there. Fritz and his chemical inventions were essential to Germany's World War I efforts. And this Haber-Bosch process allowed Germany to continue making bombs during World War I after Britain cut off Germany's supply of synthetic nitrates. Some of his other work during World War I included the development of poisonous gases, one of which was eventually used in Hitler's concentration camps oh. in World War II. Yep. Oh, that's really unfortunate. Yeah, It's really bad. That gas was called Zyklon B, and it was a pesticide, and it's estimated that 1.1 million people were killed using this method.
0: Wow. This just
2: took a turn. Yeah, I know. That got real heavy. So it was a pesticide that he was using. Mm Mm-hmm. Cyclone B. I don't know if it was ever actually used as a pesticide to grow food, but clearly it's quite toxic.
0: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's terrible. So,
2: yeah, it's a lot to digest, and I'm sorry to hit you with that so soon. Fritz was quoted as saying, In peacetime, the scientist belongs to humanity, in wartime to his fatherland. Mm Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Very interesting and fascinating, but devastating. No, it's devastating. Yeah. The same guy who, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for setting humanity up for success, and then he did something so terrible. Okay, so Fritz's wife was a chemist as well, and apparently she was the love of his life, and she was strongly and vocally opposed to her husband's involvement in the war. And when Fritz Haber returned from World War I, it only took a few days for his wife to use his army pistol to take her own life.
0: Oh, her own life.
2: Yeah. I know. And the irony, I guess, Fritz Haber himself was a German Jew and he was exiled from Germany in 1934. What? I know. What? Right? Yeah. I'm sorry. What? Yeah, I know. I know. Your jaw dropped. Is this I the, the jaw dropping part you're talking about? Yeah. Isn't it the most insane story? And there's an incredible article on Medium by a journalist named Paul Barak, called The Tragedy of Fritz Haber, The Monster Who Fed the World. Incredible article. And Michael Pollan also writes about him in The Omnivore's Dilemma. So okay, that's where I first learned about this story. My jaw still drops every time I hear it. Like, it's just the highest highs and the lowest, lowest lows.
0: Yeah, this guy sounds like an idiot.
2: Yeah. Okay, let's move on to pesticides. <laughs> doesn't get too much brighter. Arsenic was a commonly used pesticide, and it's interesting because arsenic is naturally occurring, but it's also incredibly toxic at high doses. Remember from last week, the dose makes the poison, but at low doses, our bodies can handle it just fine, but higher doses can be lethal. So in the Middle Ages, arsenic was a well-known homicidal and suicidal agent, and it was involved in many high-profile murders. In fact, arsenic was often referred to as both the king of poisons and the poison of kings because Mm. it was both so effective, but it was also used to remove members of the ruling class during the Middle Ages. my goodness. So this is a bit of a tangent, but I thought it was really interesting. Arsenic is odorless and tasteless, so it's easy to hide in food or beverages. And the symptoms of arsenic poisoning include nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and pain, so the classic symptoms of nearly everything. So nothing stands out from other illnesses, basically making it the perfect medieval poison. Mm. And I think you'll like this, Becca. In the first trial that ever presented forensic evidence, this was in France, 1840, a woman named Madame Lafarge was sentenced to death after poisoning her husband with arsenic hidden in some cakes. Hmm. And one of her servants actually found traces of a white powder And it was proven in court to be arsenic based on some of its physical qualities. So appearance, texture, behavior in water, and its garlic-like odor when burned.
0: Oh, interesting. Isn't that cool? I love that you thought that I would love that because I did. Yeah, a little
2: (laughs) forensic tangent. It's not super pesticide related, but...
0: No, I honestly love learning about what these things do because otherwise you would just go about your day not knowing what they do. So (laughs) thank you for that aside. (laughs)
2: You're welcome. Okay, so although it was clearly known that arsenic was toxic to humans at certain doses, an arsenic-based pesticide called Paris Green was used until the year 1900 to control Colorado potato beetles and mosquitoes, and its use was quite widespread. So it was one of the first, heavy quotes here, successful insecticides. Okay. But that success wasn't too long-lived. So what's interesting about it is that it was highly effective against insects and even rats, Mm. but it was also this beautiful emerald green pigment, and it became really trendy after Empress Eugenie wore a green dress so vibrant and breathtaking that it made the headlines, and it was dyed with Paris green. Okay. So this insecticide had multiple uses. So it was used to dye all sorts of things, clothing, paint, wallpaper, candy, regular paper, toys, medicine, and it was also an insecticide.
0: So were there any issues using it as a dye?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So there are plenty of mysterious illnesses and deaths from this time period, a lot of them in children who have lower tolerances for toxins. Mm. And they're suspected to be due to Paris Green. Okay. Not a lot of definitive links as you know, things in our environment are, are often very hard to link definitively to certain things, but yeah, highly suspected to be Paris green. So by 1960, arsenic-based pesticides were completely banned, completely phased out.
0: I mean, that makes sense.
2: Yeah. <laughs> okay, and one final pesticide. I'm just going to touch on this one really quickly. DDT. I feel like I've heard a lot about this one. Dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane. That's nice, eh?
0: Yeah, I'm not going to try it, but you did you did really well.
2: <laughs> Thank you. So, I honestly think DDT could be its own episode because there's a lot okay. to it, but it was introduced to the US in the 1940s and it seemed like a wonderful advancement. It allowed farmers to grow a lot more food, food could be cheaper, and DDT actually was reducing malaria rates, which was awesome. Oh, that's interesting because it was killing the mosquitoes. But not too long after, five or six years after, the earliest case of DDT resistance was reported in a house fly. And then shortly after that, there were reports of harm in non-target plants and animals. And apparently, like as soon as it was introduced, farmers started noticing you know, birds and other animals being dead Aww. on their properties. Yeah. Plus, Rachel Carson's famous book, Silent Springs. Have you ever heard of this one? No. So it was this revolutionary book at the time that criticized the indiscriminate use of pesticides and their negative impacts on the environment. And this book kind of woke the public up to the, the potential side effects of these pesticides and insecticides and fertilizers and things like that. So public pressure increased for the regulation of pesticides and DDT was banned by 1972. Okay. It is still used in some places around the world, though.
0: That's unfortunate.
2: I know there is some criticism. I didn't write anything down about this. I only like just skimmed the surface of research, but there's some people that think it shouldn't have been banned because the benefits in terms of malaria prevention were so great. So it's kind of like a cost benefit analysis. But for the most part, I think it's pretty consensus, that scientific consensus that DDT Mm -hmm. should be banned. Okay, so the increasing public awareness of pesticides and fertilizers coincided with the rise of the organic movement. Modern organics in Canada and the U.S. date back to around the 1940s and 50s. And this is a time where organic leaders, um, mostly farmers, began noticing the dead birds, the pollinators, littering their farms after trying pesticides. And around the same time, an organic advocate named J.I. Rodale he founded the Rodale Institute in the U.S., and he began publishing a magazine that was all about organic farming and gardening, and he's considered the father of the organic movement. Rodale. As awareness grew, consumers began to want organic food, and farmers and retailers wanted a way for consumers to tell what is actually organic food, right? Right. And to be able to distinguish between the real stuff and fraudulent claims by people, business people just trying to take advantage of the movement. So, this is where the certification movement was born. And the certification standards were developed throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And today, Canada and the US both have federally legislated standards that products have to achieve to be able to use the certified organic mm-hmm. label. And in both Canada and the U.S., that means they have to contain at least 95% organic ingredients. Or so you think. Or so you think. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (gasps) Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Suspicious. (laughs) So suspicious.
1: (laughs) Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot.
2: Okay, so after all these stories, organic agriculture is looking pretty good to me. And remember, organic is not just about the pesticide and fertilizer use. It's also about protecting the environment and biodiversity and relying on renewable resources Mm -hmm. and improving soil health and all the good stuff. But the whole reason that agriculture even started incorporating pesticides and herbicides and fertilizers is because the population was growing so rapidly that they needed higher food yields. Mm -hmm. And organic agriculture does have smaller yields. Yes. And they needed food to be more affordable. And that's another huge plus of the conventional farming system, Mm -hmm. is that food is quite affordable. So there have been meta-analyses comparing different aspects of conventional and organic agriculture. And when it comes to the environmental impacts and sustainability There's actually, shockingly, in my opinion, no clear winner. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So organic agriculture produces better soil quality and greater biodiversity. Yeah. However, conventional agriculture does have some advantages over organic in terms of land use and yield. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Uses less land to produce more food, which is important. Estimates say that organic farming could require between 25 and 100% more land to produce the same amount of food as a whole as conventional agriculture. Wow,
0: 100% more land in some cases.
2: Yeah. And then finally, greenhouse gas emissions are actually approximately the same by some studies because when you factor in the natural manure used for fertilization in organic farms, That ups the greenhouse gases. What do we know about cow farts? Methane. (laughs) Yeah. And if you're using cow manure as your fertilizer, that's a lot of methane. One thing that experts mostly agree on is that it's not a question of one or the other, but instead that a blend of both practices is probably the best way to go. And different areas of the world will benefit from different ratios of organic to conventional methods. Conventional farming absolutely has a lot to learn from organic farming methods. Mm-hmm. And so probably a combination of these agricultural practices will work best for feeding the planet. Yeah. It's also worth noting that since organic farming is relatively new, if a lot of money was pumped into organic farming and maybe more research was done, perhaps that land and yield gap could be closed.
0: For sure. And I think a lot of the, the issues with the conventional farming more so land with ethics. Absolutely. You know, like ethical uses of certain mm-hmm. things, ethical treatment of livestock. Like, I think that yeah. that's kind of where where they need to grow.
2: Agricultural workers as well.
0: Agricultural workers, of course.
2: Um, okay, so not everyone is purchasing organic for just the environmental benefits. Most people believe that they're making the healthier choice. But are they? And the answer is probably. <laughs> so... There is definitely research that suggests organic food fares better nutritionally than conventional food. So for example, organic food does produce, does tend to be higher in antioxidants, and organically fed meat and dairy tends to have higher levels of omega-3 fatty acid. And this is important. That doesn't necessarily mean that conventionally produced food is not nutritious. It's totally nutritious, still high in antioxidants, still can have omega-3 fatty acids but maybe just not quite as much as organic. Mm-hmm. Organic food also obviously has lower pesticide residues, considering it's not produced with any. And this is important too, because pesticide residues on conventional produce are still well within the safe limits. Right. And we learned all about that last episode. Mm-hmm. Dose makes the poison. Okay, so the safe limits for pesticides on food are set out by the Environmental Protection Agency and they're based on a comprehensive risk assessment that includes careful examination of sensitive subpopulations, so infants and children. And when they determine their safety threshold, they use a 100 fold safety margin based on the no observed adverse effects level. Okay. So basically, they make it safer than safe. Like this is the highest you can have, and that is not going to cause an effect, even in the most sensitive population. Okay, I
0: mean, that makes sense for sure. And um, is the EPA, is that like a global organization? Is it like Canadian? Do you know?
2: That's um, the States. States? Okay. Yeah, Environmental Protection Agency. Okay, so both the EPA and the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture, consistently find that 99.8% of foods are well below safe levels. And that nearly 50% have no residues at all. So the bottom line to wrap up my part is that while there's no strong evidence that eating organic ben- benefits our health significantly more than conventional foods, it's your choice. So if you want to support organic agriculture, organic produce, organic farming, organic farmers, then do it. And if you, it's not within your means to do so right now, you can eat super nutritiously conventionally as well. hmm did you learn a lot? That was great. I learned so much. My
0: jaw dropped a few times. So with the the nutritional stuff, I actually thought that there was no difference. So that was actually a little bit shocking to me. Did you find
2: that? Mm-hmm. Was that in like a study yeah. that you? Yeah, it's not like a massive difference, though, but it's. Oh, that's really interesting.
0: And I think one big thing to note here, too, is that there are likely so many other smaller scale farms that might not be able to afford the organic label, Yeah, but that are using sustainable practices on their their land and are using ethical things on their food. And I feel like Mm -hmm. that needs to be taken into consideration as well, that you do actually have to pay for this organic label.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. A lot of small local farms, I've heard, usually have organic practices, but just can't afford to get the certification. Mm
0: -hmm. Which is kind of sad. I feel like this should make it a little bit more accessible.
2: Are you going to ruin something for me? Like organic food? I mean, I might.
0: I don't know. I might ruin organic food for you. If you want to continue eating organic... Stop listening to me now. (laughs) Oh, God. I'm just joking. Honestly, like, there's definitely some stuff that has happened in history that's currently happening that's a little bit questionable. But I'm also going to tell you some ways that you can protect yourself from being a victim of organic food crime.
2: Organic food crime. Oh, my gosh. I'm excited. And that's really what this is all about, right? Being the most informed consumer we can be. For sure. And I, I feel like an informed
0: consumer can make changes in the food industry where changes are, are needed, like we were talking about last episode. Mm-hmm. All um, right, Sarah. Let's do this. Are you ready for this? Yeah, I am. I'm really excited. Okay. So today, we're going to talk a little bit more about organic food fraud. I know nothing. I'm really glad that you know nothing because <laughs> I found this topic so fascinating to learn about. I mean, as long as there has been food, there has been food fraud. So this is such a long-standing and common issue. And when I was doing this research, I was surprised to find that there's actually very few comprehensive resources when it comes to the cases of organic food fraud. So there's so many cases, but there's very few resources that kind of compile these together. So I until had to now. do
1: until now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I had to do a lot of shifting. There was There were tons of tabs open on my computer screen, but we got it done. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay, so before we get deep into this, I'm going to give you a quick background on what the heck food fraud is and why you should be concerned. Then I'm going to get into a couple of the cases and some relevant information to help you from being a victim of organic food fraud, as I mentioned before. Ooh. If you buy organic, you have likely, if not certainly, Purchased fraudulent products at some point. Oh gosh.
2: <laughs> That's just so, not fair. It's more expensive. I know. Don't do that to us.
0: I know. Are you upset with me or are you upset with the uh the fraudsters?
2: The fraudsters. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm thankful for you for for enlightening me already. I know. Sometimes it's better to be naive about it, but I'm here to to ruin that for you. <laughs> not when your money's
0: involved. That's true. It's very true. Okay. So food fraud is defined as purposely mislabeling, misrepresenting, substituting, altering, or tampering with a food product at any point along the food chain. So food fraud can occur within the ingredients of a product, with the final product, or with the packaging of the product. So, based on that definition and the Government of Canada's website, and I should say that the US defines food fraud in very similar ways. Food fraud can take many forms. And I'm going to read you just a little bit of a blurb that I found on the Government of Canada's website about the different types of food fraud. Okay. So foods may be intentionally misrepresented through, one, substituting a product with something of a different character or quality. For example, using horse meat instead of beef or pollock as cod. I know, it's pretty disgusting, right? (laughs) Number two adulterating or diluting a product by mixing in other ingredients or elements and not declaring them on the label. So for example, adding sugar syrup to honey, sunflower Mm -hmm. oil to olive oil, adding fillers to ground spices, or adding apple juice to pomegranate juice, which I didn't know was a thing. Didn't either. (laughs) Number three is mislabeling a product as something that it's not, obviously. For example, labeling farmed salmon as wild salmon or labeling apples as organic when they aren't certified as such. Wow. Number four is making false claims or misleading statements to make the product appear to do something that hasn't been proven. Okay. Now this one gets a little bit fuzzy because the examples here are claiming a product is preservative-free when it contains preservatives, which we'll get Mm -hmm. into later, or saying that it's sodium-free when thresholds aren't met. But Mm. I was a little bit taken aback by this one because I feel like there are a lot of claims out there such as like detoxifying and things like that, where sure, it might be Coming out of your body in the form of a toxin such as urine but does that mean that it's true that it's detoxifying your body
2: i'm sure there's so much spin when it comes because there's there are so many products that make claims that probably aren't proven or they're proven with like cherry picked data so they're like oh this is kind of true it is you are detoxifying when you're peeing yeah so that's an interesting one i'm curious
0: yeah just a bunch of spin doctors (laughs) yeah Um, individuals or organizations may commit food fraud to intentionally cause harm to others or for financial gain. So adulterating food products is usually done for financial gain. And I actually found somewhere that stated that more money is made in food fraud than in narcotics. Wow. Yep. Yeah. And when you start to think about how much money goes into the food chain, it starts to make a little bit more sense.
2: I feel like I've been living under <laughs> a rock. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I know. Okay. So food
0: fraud also tends to take place most with luxury or expensive items. So not your traditional apples and oranges, usually. It's more things like olive oil, maple syrup, honey, seafood, coffee, vanilla, vanilla. So as the demand for something goes up for a product, instances of food fraud often increase. So I didn't really look into coconut oil, but I think that it would be a really good one for us to, to look into for another episode.
2: Ooh, okay. Making that.
0: Because I was reading that it takes about eight years to grow a coconut. Oh
2: my gosh. From ground
0: up. Coconut oil kind of hit the market, blew up mm-hmm. within the last couple of years how are they producing so much coconut oil? Totally, yep. I'm just gonna leave that question with you because I don't know the answer, (laughs) but I think that we should
2: look it up. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's really interesting. That's a good point. Okay, so there
0: is a difference between food fraud and what is called intentional consumer confusion when it comes to food products. Intentional consumer confusion is exactly what it sounds like. It may mean that something is misleading, so it's a misleading label or um, using certain marketing tactics. So as we were talking about before, claiming that something is detoxifying where Mm -hmm. this is confusion because it's not necessarily illegal to say, but it's not necessarily 100% truthful. Right. So I think this also ties in really well to what we were talking about last episode and what you mentioned in your part earlier where consumers tend to be afraid of this idea of having chemicals in their food. As you said earlier in this episode, we live among chemicals. Mm -hmm. Like everything in this, like on this earth is made up of those known elements in the periodic table. And brands have a tendency to take advantage of this fear by claiming that their food products are natural, detoxifying. They might use, yeah, clean. They might use less chemicals. Yeah, and this this is extremely misleading. Mm -hmm. And any chemical, even H2O... Can lead to intoxication. But this type of consumer confusion is exactly why we're talking about organics today. People are afraid of chemicals and consumer awareness seems to be fairly low on what constitutes organic food and criminals are quite literally taking advantage of the situation. So food fraud is often discussed based on the type of food that is being adulterated. But organic food fraud covers a vast variety of products, from produce to packaged products, which is why it's so important to understand. Organic food is quite literally everywhere. Now, Sarah, I'm sure that you have seen influencers promoting organic produce or things like the Clean 15. Yeah, for sure. And I don't know about you, but this type of promotion drives me absolutely bonkers. Yeah, me too. It's it's a little bit elitist, I find. Mm-hmm. It for sure is. Because it's promoting the most expensive product out there. Well, even
2: worse than the Clean 15, the Dirty doesn't. The Dirty doesn't. And then that implies that if you can't buy organic for those 12 products, then you're eating dirty food. You're eating dirty. Yeah, I don't don't like that at all.
0: Yeah, they're unfortunate terms, and it would be great if they could at least change the names of them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But yeah, so I I do. I find these these terms and this type of promotion a little bit outrageous. And sometimes I don't even know if these individuals understand what they are promoting. Mm -hmm. So I do think that it's safe to say that organic is also a commonly used buzzword in the health food industry. Mm -hmm. Remember what I said earlier, that as demand increases, opportunity for fraud also increases. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And this is exactly the case with organic food. Okay. So between 2001 and 2011, the number of organic farms in Canada grew by 66%. Wow. In
2: 2012,
0: the organic food market was worth an estimated $3.7 billion. In Canada? And in Canada in 2012. Wow. But now it's estimated that the Canadian market is valued at $6.9 billion, so even more. Okay. And then in the United States last year, in 2019, or the organic food market sales totaled $55.1 billion. Oh my God. So gosh. the demand is obviously ginormous. There's so much demand. Yeah. But can farming land and practices adapt this quickly to meet the demand? I'm going to say no. I don't have the answer for you, but it's just a question to kind of keep in mind as we go through this.
2: I'm a natural skeptic, so I'll, I'll keep my, uh, my skepticism <laughs> in my pocket. That's why I like you.
0: <laughs> okay. Now, I want to mention that I, I do love the idea of organic farming. So what you were talking yeah. about, Sarah, I, I like that idea, that concept. Mm-hmm. A way of producing food that's more environmentally sustainable and it uses fewer pesticides. Mm-hmm. It sounds amazing. But one of the biggest issues is that it might not actually be more sustainable for the size of our global population, yeah. as you were saying. Yeah. Also, as you mentioned, organic produce yields smaller products. So when it does come to organic, you are paying more for less. And there is a price premium associated with these products, mainly because it takes more money to produce these products, yeah. which makes sense. But the most common type of organic food fraud is when they simply sell you non-organic products claiming that they are organic. Just straight up, eh? It's a very, very lazy type of fraud, I feel. <laughs> but yeah, you can see like with the amount that that people will pay for this food, that how much they're willing to pay for this food, you can see how the benefits would kind of add up for somebody who's into food fraud. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Someone who's into food fraud. I just love I had, food fraud.
0: <laughs> I had the word fraudsters here. but. <laughs> fraudsters. Okay, so I'm going to tell you just a couple of the most recent and most notorious stories regarding food fraud. And as you said earlier, buckle up. (laughs) (laughs) This instance of food fraud hits really close to home, as this is a Canadian scam that took place from 2014 to 2016. Can I
2: guess? Yes. Is it maple syrup?
0: No, it's not. Okay. Good guess, though. Thank
2: God. You're not going to ruin a national treasure for me. (laughs) No, not maple syrup. Not today, anyways. Okay, (laughs) okay. I'm done guessing. That was my only guess. That (laughs) was your only guess. (laughs) (laughs) All
0: right, then you will be surprised. (laughs) So early in 2017, an anonymous tip was made to Chilean customs inspectors about a brand of raspberries that were leaving the country. The tip claimed that the batch going into Canada was under some sort of threat. And upon investigating this claim, they uncovered a food trading crime ring that extended across three continents. What was happening was that non-organic raspberries grown in China were being shipped to Chile, then being repackaged and rebranded by a brand called Fruity de Bosco, And the issue was that they were rebranding these berries as a premium organic product that was grown in Chile Mm -hmm. and reselling them at this premium price, even though they were just regular old raspberries that were grown using unauthorized pesticides in China.
2: Wow. Okay. And the markup on berries from non-organic to organic is wild. Uh Uh-huh. Wow. The innocent little raspberries. I know. My favorite fruit, by the way, love raspberries.
0: It's definitely one of my favorites as well. Tied
2: with pineapple.
0: Okay. Oh, pineapple's is great, but it gives me cankers. You just gotta <laughs> chill a little bit. It's too acidic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a combination of just like stress and
2: pineapple and acid. Okay. <laughs> yeah. okay.
0: For the two years that these berries were being mislabeled and sold, Canada received about $12 million worth of them. Wow. So if you bought organic raspberries between the years 2014 and 2016, you were likely a victim of this crime. Oh my gosh. What's even worse is that this Chinese supplier called Harbin Gotai Food Co. Limited. Mm-hmm had a recall on their non-organic raspberries in Canada in 2016. Okay. And this was because there were hundreds of cases of the norovirus that were linked to their produce. Wow. But because the Chinese company was shipping their regular raspberries to Chile, where they were being rebranded, Canadian authorities were unable to properly track and stop the consumption of these infected berries. Wow. And I want to just quickly give you a breakdown of what the norovirus is. And yeah, I just want to talk about the disgusting repercussions of this crime for just a hot minute. Okay. So the norovirus is a super contagious virus where the most common symptoms include vomiting and diarrhea. It's often called the cruise ship virus since it's known to spread incredibly fast on cruise ships. And this is simply because of how contagious it is and... Of course, like the the close quarters. Mm-hmm. And if we have learned anything from COVID nineteen, it's that viruses thrive on cruise ships. Yes, <laughs> but yeah, this is the grossest part. Norovirus is often spread through the contamination of food, but the way that it is most commonly transmitted is through human feces. Mm-hmm. So just because your food isn't covered in certain pesticides and herbicides, doesn't mean that it isn't covered in human crap.
2: Wow. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, you really <laughs> made a visual there. That's, <laughs> it's so gross.
0: I know. So just make sure you're washing your produce at home, everyone. And that's what was
2: on these raspberries.
0: Yes. Yeah. So they weren't able to track how many cases of norovirus occurred from the Chilean raspberries yeah. or the Chinese raspberries right. that were in Chile. But there was a huge outbreak with the ones that were being directly sent from China. In Canada. Yeah. So there were likely some cases that went unnoticed or unrecognized, but they weren't able to figure it out until after they found out what was going on.
2: Wow. Mm -hmm. I have a question. Is it not a major red flag for raspberries to be getting sent from China to Chile and then to Canada? Like raspberries do not have that long of a shelf life. Yeah. I don't know
0: exactly what the timeline was on that. I think they might just pick them before they're ripe, like maybe when they're still a little bit green. I know they do that with a lot right. of other different yeah. types of, of fruit and vegetables. I, I don't know specifically about raspberries, but I know that that's what they do. Like bananas, bananas are essentially inedible when they pick them. You have yeah. to wait a couple of days totally. until they're that perfect green yep. color.
2: <laughs> no, they have to be. They have to be yellow I and had a feeling we We're
0: going to disagree lying. on this. <laughs>
2: Yeah, <laughs> I knew as soon as you started. We them. would
0: be perfect roommates. Okay, so let's get back to this disgusting story. <laughs> Apparently, this raspberry scheme was incredibly easy to pull off since Canada and Chile have had a trade pack since 1997 that allows the exporter of whatever it is to self-certify their own products. And the documents certifying the raspberries as organic were obviously found to be fake. So according to Fruity de Bosco, so, the owner of Fruity D Bosco, Cesar Ramirez is his name. The company was in cahoots with a Canadian brand called Alasco Foods Inc., which is based in Montreal. So, Alaska specializes in frozen fruit products. And based on Ramirez's account, Alasco had ordered, financed, and supervised repackaging of the Chinese berries in Chile. Alasco has denied all of these allegations. So, there's really no proof to say whether or not this is true, but this is what was stated in Ramirez's court case.
2: Wow. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. In 2019, Ramirez pled guilty to two criminal counts of making false statements on export declarations. Well, the Chilean Customs recommended a fine of up to $55.6 million for the impact of mistrust on the Chilean fruit industry... Ramirez was given a $6,266 fine and a suspended jail sentence of 122 days.
2: He must have had an amazing lawyer. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's huge. Yeah, he got off the heck easy.
0: (laughs) Huh? That's wild. I know. And I think that, yeah, I understand the concerns of the Chilean Customs representatives because... A lot of imports coming from Chile to Canada are fruit. We get a lot of our our fruit, mm-hmm. especially from Chile.
2: Was this big in the news at the time? Like, do you remember this happening in 2016?
0: No. So most of this stuff was found out like later on. Um, and then this case obviously happened in 2019. So just last year.
2: 2019. And I, yeah. I
0: honestly don't really remember seeing any of it in the news.
2: Yeah, that's even more shocking because in 2019, I would have been paying more attention to food. Mm-hmm. Stories like this. And I don't remember hearing about this at all.
0: Yeah, I know it's wild huh. stuff.
2: That is wild. Mm-hmm. So Ramirez
0: is now suing Alasco and a businessman who Ramirez claims was working on behalf of Alaska. So as of October 6th of this year, so 2020, this lawsuit is still pending. But on March 6th of this year, Alasco put out a statement claiming that they no longer do business with Fruity D. Bosco. But it took them up until 2018 to stop doing business. So two years after.
2: Wow. (laughs) According to the news. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. That's so interesting.
0: Yes. But in this same statement, they said something that kind of irked me a little bit. And I want to know your thoughts on it, Sarah. So I'll, I'll give you the quote. It's the responsibility of the growers and packers to have the proper food safety and organic certifications and to provide the associated documentation required for shipments to Canada. What are your thoughts?
2: It might be- So Alaska is saying that about, or fruity? Yes.
0: So it's probably difficult when you don't have it in front of you because it's obviously just like the way that the words are placed, but they're essentially blaming everybody in the food chain except for them.
2: Yeah, totally. I definitely take issue with the blaming of the growers. I feel like the growers are in China. Yeah. They have nothing to do the with the growers. The growers are not
0: in Chile. Uh, yeah. It's honestly, it's honestly madness. I, it really kind of ticked me off to read that. And I just
2: feel like farmers have it so tough. I really do. Mm-hmm. Don't shit on the farmers, please.
0: No. Okay. So the Canadian Food Inspection Agency also agrees with us. And they said that importers like Alaska play a key role in keeping consumers safe, obviously. Mm -hmm. They must ensure that the source of the food is from a reliable supplier and that the food meets all of Canada's regulatory requirements. And of course we agree with that. I feel like it is definitely a bit unfair to put the onus entirely on the growers and packers and to not take any of the blame on themselves, especially when they were, or maybe they weren't involved with the scheme, but they were involved at some capacity, whether or not they knowingly knew it.
2: Yeah. Okay, and also, it's definitely the responsibility of the importer to make sure that wherever you're importing from is complying with Canadian standards. Mm -hmm. China growing raspberries can't be expected to comply with the organic standards of every single country, because they might be different.
0: Absolutely. And I think that the way that... They're getting around this is because it came from Chile and we have that deal with Chile where they can self certify, correct? So I think that maybe that's where their mind was at when writing that, but I think it's still a little bit unfair. Totally. Oh boy. Okay. Yep. But I did a little bit more web sleuthing after this because that's me. That's
2: (laughs) what you do. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And I found out that on October 29th, so a few weeks ago, Alaska was acquired by a company called Group Sal Inc. who specializes in food processing. And when reading this, I honestly could not help but think that there was some association between this scandal and then the sale of this company.
2: Yeah, totally.
0: Mm-hmm. That one sums up the raspberry, the raspberry scandal.
2: Uh the raspberries are the real victims here. I
0: know. <sighs> <laughs> Poor little berries. I know. <laughs> <laughs> are you ready for the next story? Yeah, I am.
2: Okay. Don't ruin another one. If you ruin pineapple for me, I'll be super upset.
0: (laughs) I'm not ruining pineapple, I promise you. Okay. Okay, so this one is one of the biggest in American history. Okay. And it has to do with the sale of organic animal feed in the form of grain. Oh my
2: gosh, this is going to be big.
0: Do you know this one? No. No? Okay. I love it when you don't know what I'm about to tell you. It is more fun that way.
2: (laughs) It is more fun, yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so this one's also a more recent story and it was uncovered really recent, like within the last two years. So, I mean, I didn't hear about it in the news, but some people that are listening may have because it's very current. Mm. Anyways, this one takes place on a farm in Chillicothe, Missouri. And I hope I pronounced that right. (laughs) Uh, And this farm is owned by a man and his name's Randy Constant. Now, Constant was known as a very charming and Big-hearted man, he was a big churchgoer and a school board president, and he had three children, a wife. He just seemed like an amazing family man.
2: Classic all-American farmer.
0: Yes, exactly. He's a farmer. He's, He's a, a farmer. farmer yeah.
2: yeah.
0: Uh, one article even said that he was the best thing to come out of this Missouri city since their pre-cut bread loaves. And oh. fun fact: Chillicothe is actually where. Pre-cut bread took place. The first pre-cut bread. he's
2: literally the greatest thing since sliced bread. Since sliced bread, yeah.
0: And that's a high bar. For sure it is. Like, I couldn't imagine having to slice my bread at this point in my life.
2: (laughs) No. Oh my gosh. That's amazing.
0: Yeah. I love that fun fact. I know. And then I just like, I just grabbed a little snippet of information. I dug into um, the invention of the bread. So it was actually, it was a baker who came up with the idea and came from 1928. 1928? 1928. It's that recent? Mm-hmm. It was reported in the newspaper in this town. Then the concept just grew from there. That's so cool. I thought that was pretty neat. Thanks. Thanks, Ch- Chillicothe? Chilla, yeah, Chillicothe. Okay, so Randy Constance Farm primarily grew organic grain for animal feed, and more specifically, for chickens and cattle. So That livestock was then sold, so the livestock that was eating his grains were typically sold as organic meat or byproducts, and those byproducts were often used to make other organic products. Okay. And then Randy also raised tilapia, which he sold to many different store chains, including Whole Foods.
2: Organic tilapia as well?
0: It didn't specify whether or not the tilapia was organic, and more so focused on the grains. Yeah, there was... okay. Nothing about that, and I'm, I'm assuming it just was regular tilapia. Okay. But in, uh, so yeah, in 2017, he was one of 10 successful farmers to watch in Successful Farming magazine. Wow. So this guy was obviously a big deal. A really big deal. A big farming deal. But unfortunately, this came to a screeching halt in 2018. Oh, no. And in 2018, it was found that from... 2010 to 2017, Constance's feed was anything but organic. Seven years. Mm -hmm. This meant that any of the livestock that consumed his products were not actually organic either. And that livestock farmers and thousands of consumers had been tricked into purchasing these products at a premium price. It started at one farmer, but it essentially affected so many products and so many people's decisions in terms of Mm -hmm. what they were consuming.
2: This is huge. It's huge. It's really, really big. Mm -hmm.
0: So he misled a large number of people with a scheme admitting to over $142 million in grain sales. Oh my gosh. And these sales made up for 7% of all organic corn and 8% of all organic soybeans grown in the U.S. So this was huge, ginormous.
2: Okay, that's so much. I'm also thinking like... This one man, this one farm was responsible for 7% of all corn, 8% of all soy.
0: Yeah. So he had some help, which I'll get into.
2: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, do they not clue in that he might have been using some enhancers? Well, yeah. So it was it was actually reported by one of his competitors. Yeah. No kidding. It's impossible. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, at this point, I was wondering what he was doing with all of this money, because that's a, that's a massive amount of money. million. Mm -hmm. So he was very wholesome with it to some degree. It sounds like he took his family on a lot of elaborate trips and he paid for a lot of his family members to go on these trips. So it sounded like they had some really great family time. Uh But then he also started making his trips to Las Vegas. He took about 20 trips to Vegas In these 20 trips to Vegas, he would hire escorts and he'd gambled a ton. So he spent over a quarter million dollars on two of the three escorts that he had relationships with over the seven year period. And he Mm -hmm. spent another $360,000 on other related Vegas expenses over the 20 trips. And some of these expenses included travel, car expenses, and breast augmentation surgery for one of his escorts. And, yeah, I mean, I feel like just as a family man, he just wasn't making the best decisions. This was, seemed a little bit out of character, just based on what everybody else was saying. Total double life, yeah, completely um so Randy Constant was eventually caught, and um, he ended up admitting to misleading customers by telling them that his fields in Nebraska and Missouri were all organic, when, in fact, they were sprayed with unauthorized chemicals or they were mixed with non-organic grain. Right. Mm -hmm. So either diluted the batch or the batch was just completely fraudulent. Mm. So as you were saying, this could not just be done by one man. And you were right. There were three other farmers from Nebraska who helped him with this. And these three farmers were from Overton, Nebraska. And they supplied him with some of the non-organic grain And they fully knew that he was reselling it as organic. Wow. So over this period of time, these three men collectively made about $10 million in the scheme. Okay. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, it's not a lot considering how much he was making. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But to just give someone some seeds, it's a pretty good... <laughs> it's a pretty good deal. It's a pretty good deal. <laughs> um, but yeah, so these three men
0: were sentenced to federal prison following a guilty plea for wire fraud. Shockingly, that was what they got wire for. Wire fraud?
1: hmm It's
0: essentially any type of fraud that happens, like, over the internet. Oh, wow. So Mike Potter, aged 42, was sentenced to two years in prison. James Brennan, aged 41, was sentenced to 20 months. And Tom Mm -hmm. Brennan, age 71, was only sentenced to three months since the judge claimed that he was a war hero for his time spent in Vietnam. So each of the three men also had to forfeit a million dollars from their crimes.
2: So they got to keep nine million? I know. this is It got me thinking, like, they
0: each got to keep three million dollars still. Yeah. Unless that all went to seeds, which I have a hard time believing.
2: Yeah, I can't see seeds being that expensive.
0: And the, the, the man with the highest sentence only got two years, so... Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't make too too much sense. Okay. In December 2018, Constant pled guilty to one count of wire fraud. And in August 2019, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. So he got a little bit more time. Mm-hmm. And he was ordered to forfeit $128 million from the oh, crimes. Oh, my gosh. hmm And wow. the judge stated that he had caused incalculable damage just because of all of the food all of the products that he had tainted essentially yeah Mm -hmm. and i mean not tainted but misrepresented
2: misrepresented so then the trust in the agricultural system the trust Mm -hmm. in organics the trust in farmers
0: yeah i know that's a lot i know Now, this story does get a little bit sad. Sorry, Sarah. I feel like this is a sad episode. It's already sad. (laughs) So three days after his sentencing in August 2019, and a few days before his 61st birthday, he was found dead in his garage from carbon monoxide poisoning. Mm. So, yeah. 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 Many people thought that his sentence was too tough, and he had over 70 character references that were given to the judge to attest for his good character. But unfortunately, it seems like the judge was trying to make an example out of the scenario. And I mean, honestly, how, how else are you going to prevent this type of fraud from happening at this scale, if yeah. not setting an example? Oh, I feel so conflicted. I know. I know. I, I do too. And it's just, it's a really unfortunate end to such like a, a wild story.
2: A big influence in that community as well, mm-hmm. and clearly a positive influence. I mean, he was knowingly producing fraudulent food and selling it to people who were making, who were paying premium prices because they really believed in the choices that they were making. They wanted to eat organic meats or whatever they were purchasing. But
0: yeah, yeah, it was interesting because his his um, his lawyer the defense essentially was that it's a victimless crime what he was doing was victimless.
2: But it it is, if conventional meat and dairy is safe, and it is, then it is a victimless crime, kind of. Technically. But, well, no, it's not, because people paid higher prices for organic food Mm -hmm. and believed that they were eating organic food.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I know.
2: I mean, on a lighter note, this
0: instance of food fraud was deemed the field of schemes, which is Obviously,
2: <laughs> play that's on good, words of yeah. the field of dreams.
0: <laughs> that's
2: good. Thought you would like that. Yeah, that brings it back up. <laughs> <laughs> good.
0: But yeah, so that's the end of the second story. But I do still have some information that I want to cover. And I just want to talk a little bit about what we were kind of getting into. Just right there, about why organic food fraud is a big issue. Why it's not a victimless crime. Yes. And While in general, it may seem like it is victimless, there are many unintended consequences of these types of crimes. For instance, we could talk just a little bit about like the consumption of pesticides where Mm -hmm. whether they're organic or not, and whether they're any better if they're organic or not, I don't know. But this is essentially causing the consumer to eat something that they are purposely avoiding.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: And then there's the issues of tracking, as there was with the Canadian norovirus case. So, if the food isn't coming from where it's saying it's coming from, then there's issues connecting it to different spots on the food chain.
2: Right. Yes. Then
0: it also undercuts the legitimate organic farmers and can potentially undermine the certification as a whole. So, that organic certification. Mm-hmm. And the biggest issue, which we kind of talked about, was just that organic food is really deemed as being healthier, more wholesome. And many families across North America may be saving their money and spending their money on these products, thinking that they're better for the environment or for the health of their families. When a lot of the times, it doesn't seem like they really are.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> this is like a really. I'm not even saying this ironically because it was on my list, but this is really thought provoking. Mm-hmm. I feel like I need to sit down and digest everything that we're learning here.
0: It's, it's like a web. On the internet, you click on one article, one brief, like news brief, something like that, and you just get like warped right into it. It's so fascinating. Okay, I have a little bit more. Just as food fraud tends to increase as demand increases for a product, it also has a tendency to increase during periods of recession. So with more people making more food at home with COVID-19, organic food sales have actually increased. So more food fraudsters might be looking to take shortcuts due to these increases in sales or to turn a blind eye to things that might be happening within their company. The COVID-19 pandemic has also slowed down food audits, specifically in Canada, which may act as an invitation to criminals to commit this type of fraud. Now, of course, as we discussed, this is a bigger issue than just consumer trickery. And the food industry as a whole does not take it lightly, specifically in the U.S. in this case. But in October of this year, the USDA, so the United States Department of Agriculture, proposed new organic food regulations focusing on the production, handling, and sales of organic agricultural products. Okay. Now, these will include import and other certifications, new record-keeping policies, and unannounced inspections. But since we in Canada do receive a lot of our organic produce from the U.S., I'm assuming that this will benefit us as well.
2: Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm.
0: It is good news. With that being said, if you are buying organic, it's very important to be a conscious consumer. Consumer awareness does force the industry to be better. And just to give you some tips on how to be a conscious organic food consumer, I've put together just like a list of a few things. Uh I hope you know the first one. Wash your fruits and vegetables, regardless of whether or not they're organic. Yeah. (laughs) Check the label and know the lingo of the food that you are purchasing. For instance, you'll want to look for third-party compliance or third-party organic standards. Um, And then, I mean, we could really spend like a whole other hour talking about organic food lingo. But I know one example that came to mind was just that the term organic ingredients does not mean that the whole product is organic.
1: It quite literally
0: means that some of the ingredients are organic. Mm -hmm. So just knowing that and just being aware of what you're actually buying, not that it would impact your decision necessarily, but just being aware of these things and what to look out for when you are purchasing. Another tip, pick your retailers carefully and if you are going to markets or local grocers, you can, of course, talk to the owners and just kind of see where that produce is coming from. Report concerns to your country's food inspection agency. And in Canada, that's the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. This will obviously help the country just kind of keep tabs on what's happening. Yeah. Question the price. If it seems too low, there's likely a reason why it's too low. Ooh. And then lastly, you could always just buy that regular non-organic produce. So while it gets down to it, there seems to be very little difference between the nutritional value as you were talking about, Sarah. Yeah. It might not necessarily be better for the environment and it will cost you a premium for as long as you consume it. So to just finish this off, I'll say it again. Consumer awareness forces the industry to be better. Knowledge is power here. So understand what you're eating and what you're promoting to others. It's so important. I can't stress this enough.
2: That's such a good take home. <laughs> uh, that was really awesome. I learned a ton and I may, I wrote down so many things here that I'm like, okay, Google this more. It's so interesting, like, and this might send us on a whole other tangent, but I've heard so much and read so much, particularly in the omnivores dilemma about how hard it is for farmers to make money and like you have to buy certain seeds and corn is so widely used. It's in such high demand that the price is so low for it, but everyone has to keep producing it. And it's like, you see how farmers could get desperate.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think a lot of these cases too, like it might be be some farmers, but I think a lot of these are larger corporations or businesses and and things like that. Because obviously in the case of Randy Constant, he was making a ton of money. He obviously had employees. I'd be
2: curious to see what he was making before that, though. Like, what, what drove him to produce widespread fraud? This, like, God-fearing all-American farmer. Why would he do that? I'd be curious to see the backstory. That was an awesome episode. I have a question for you to get you warmed up for next episode.
0: I'm ready.
2: So what is the weirdest food you've ever eaten?
0: It's a good question. I feel like I've eaten a lot of weird food. <laughs> I try my dog's dog treats.
2: <laughs> that is weird. <laughs> How
0: are they? Um, Not great. I <laughs> normally just taste them. Like the first time I get her like a new brand or something, I'll like take a little nibble to see if it actually is good. Because sometimes she'll hate treats. I'm like, why do you hate this? You know what I mean? <laughs>
2: <laughs> you just want to know. Yeah,
0: I just want to know. And then I... uh I ate a scorpion when I was in Thailand. Oh my gosh. Whole? It was, it was whole and it was cooked. And then I okay, like ate it and off of a how stick. How was it? It was gross. It kind of tasted a little bit fishy and I wasn't sure yeah. if that's really what it tasted like or if it was because it had been sitting on the streets of Thailand all day.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really good. Dog treats and scorpions. So my weirdest food is something that, like, when I look back, I'm like, oh, I can't believe I ate that. And I had horse meat. I had oh. horse tartare, which means I had raw horse meat, which is, like, even more bizarre. That but is It was really years bizarre. ago, and it was, like, the special at this fancy restaurant, and we got it as an appetizer, and it just tasted like beef tartare. It did. Yeah, it Tastes did. Like it beef. was, like, it was actually fairly tasteless in my memory. It was, like, just very light.
0: Interesting. Yeah. When you think back on that now, how do you feel?
2: Well, so it makes, it, I feel kind of weird about it, but then I'm like, okay, so why is it weirder to eat a horse than a cow? True. It's a very large mammal.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's an interesting ethical dilemma. It is. It
0: really, really is. This is kind of why I stopped eating hooves. I don't like thinking hooves? about this.
2: Yeah. Animals with hooves. Oh. <laughs> I was like, you were eating hooves? <laughs> oh. Yeah. I think that's a good enough teaser for two weeks from now. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Yes, we'll thank catch you, so you in much. two weeks. Bye. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Dietetics After Dark. You can find all the references and materials used to put this podcast together in our show notes at thenutritionjunkie.com dot slash Dietetics After Dark. This is an independently produced podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe to our show. For more information, follow us on Instagram at Dietetics After Dark. If you have an idea for an episode or segment, email us at dieteticsafterdark at gmail.com.
2: This podcast was recorded and edited by Earworm Radio. We highly recommend their services for all of your podcasting needs. You can learn more about Earworm Radio at EarwormRadio.com.
1: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.